And uh, it is lovely uh, to see uh, so many people in church. Um, the pandemic seems to have been a long one, but it just feels like every week, it just feels like we're coming home, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So you are very welcome. Uh, my name is Alan, and uh, I am the Baptist minister here. We are an Anglican Baptist church, and uh, I'm the Baptist half of, uh, um, uh, yeah, of the team. I was going to go marriage there, and that was just going to get a little bit weird, but there we go. And uh, it's a privilege to be speaking with you this morning, and um, it's my joy to be continuing on in our series of um, exiles and ambassadors. And uh, it's the same theme that's running through the evening gathering, and as well as the, the two gatherings in the morning. In the evening, we're looking at the book of Acts, and we're particularly following the story of Paul uh, as he goes on three missionary journeys. And we're just embarking on that uh, in the evenings. But in the mornings, uh, we are going through the book of Nehemiah. And uh, Nehemiah uh, is a book in the Old Testament before Jesus was around. And uh, he is uh, one of the figures that goes back after the nation of uh, Israel, of Judah, has been sacked, as after they've been taken off into exile, he is one of the figures that comes back and begins to occupy the land. So we're in Nehemiah 3 this morning, um, and if you want to turn there, we're not going to quite go there straight away, um, but if you do scan over it, you will realize that it is just a list of really awkward names as they rebuild the walls of uh, Jerusalem. We'll get there in just a moment. But before we do, um, I've been known to give a little bit of a title from time to time when I, when I come and speak. And this morning's no different. Uh, and the title that I want to give this morning is The Genius of Knowing What Needs Fixing. The Genius of Knowing What Needs Fixing. And before we delve into the passage, I would like to uh, read a little story that I found on the internet uh, from the Smithsonian Magazine online. And uh, this is a story about uh, a guy from a, a few years back. Listen to this. Charles Steinmetz, his contributions to mathematics and electrical engineering made him one of the most beloved and instantly recognizable men of his time. He was a giant among scientific thinkers, counting Albert Einstein, Nikola Tesla, and Thomason Edison, among others, as friends. Now, Henry Ford, whose electrical engineers couldn't solve some problems that they were having with a gigantic electrical generator, called Steinmetz into the plant. Now, upon arriving, Steinmetz rejected all assistance and asked only for a notebook, a pencil, and somewhere to sleep. Steinmetz listened to the generator and scribbled computations on his notepad for two straight days. On the second night, he asked for a ladder, and he climbed up the generator and made a chalk mark on its side. Then he told Ford's skeptical engineers to remove the plate at the mark and replace 16 windings from the field coil. They did, and the generator performed to perfection. Henry Ford was thrilled until he got the invoice from Steinmetz to the amount of $10,000. Ford acknowledged Steinmetz's success, but balked to that figure, so he asked for an itemized bill. Steinmetz, he responded personally to Ford's request with the following, making a chalk mark, 
knowing where to put the chalk mark, $9,999. Henry Ford paid the bill in full. You see, there is something about knowing or the genius of knowing what needs fixing. Okay, So I want you to hold that in your mind and uh, I'm going to open up the book of Nehemiah, uh, chapter 3, and I am not going to read all of it. It's 32 verses uh, with lots of tricky names and uh, so I am going to cheat. I'm going to start at the beginning and I'm going to read chapters one, uh, verses 1 and 2 and I'm going to skip over one or two verses and uh, I'm going to read then verses 28 to 32. Uh, So that's where we're going to go. But just a little bit of context. Um, Nehemiah, he was in the capital city of a burgeoning empire. The Babylonians had come and they'd sacked Jerusalem. They'd taken off the vast majority of the nation into exile and off to Babylon they went. Babylon didn't last very long. They're taken over by the Medes and the Persians. And so Nehemiah, some 70 years after the fall of Jerusalem, finds himself in the, uh, in the court of the king as uh, in a privileged position, as Thomas told us, or, as I would prefer to see it, as the king's canary, in that he is the wine taster. He is the cup bearer to the king. And so he gets to taste the wine, and should he not die, the king will then take the wine and drink it. So he is in a privileged position. He has an audience, daily audience with the king. But it's from that throne room that he requests with fear and trembling to head back to Jerusalem, having heard reports that the nations, the nation that he originated from, that its capital city lay in ruins. And the king extends mercy to him, and he uh, sends Nehemiah off back to Jerusalem with two letters. One is a letter of uh, authority that he's going as the king's ambassador, and that letter will ensure his safe passage through hostile territory. And the second is a letter to the keeper of the royal forest, and uh, it will ensure that he has materials to build with. So off he goes. He's given authority, he's got resources to build with, he goes as the king's ambassador. And as Tom has unpacked uh, the beginning chapters of Nehemiah, one thing that he said really struck me, and that's the parallel between the place that Nehemiah finds himself in, but also then the place where Jesus finds himself, in another throne room, in, in another throne room, in the throne room of heaven with the heavenly king. And he leaves that place to go down to the earth in order to rebuild. He also goes with the authority of heaven and the resources of heaven at his disposal. Let's read together. I'm going to read it for you, but uh, some of Nehemiah 3. Here we go. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. Skipping over a little. Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, 
each in front of his own house. Next to them, Zadok, son of Immer, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shakiah, Shakaniah, and the guard at the east gate made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. Next to them, Meshuzalem, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. Next to him, Malijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the inspection gate and as far as the room above the corner. And between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. This is the tricky names of the scriptures. Praise be to God. I think we got through that. Thank you, sister. That's a beautiful thing. And I don't want to touch too much on the names and the places. They're names that appear here, and you never hear of them again. But what they do do, and what is listed in chapter 3 of Nehemiah, is the fact that they begin in, chapter, in verse 1 with the sheep gate. And by the time we get to verse 32, we are all the way back to the sheep gate again. What's listed is that the people from uh, Jerusalem, people from the surrounding areas, have all come together and have and will, over the course of time, complete the entire walls of Jerusalem. And what we learn is that, yes, there are merchants that are named and there are goldsmiths and they perhaps build big sections of the walls. But also what we see in verses 28 and 29 is each in front of their own house made repairs opposite their own house, right outside their doors, they repaired the walls. They work in verse 29 and 30, next to him, next to him, next to him, there was somebody else building the walls. That They stand shoulder to shoulder, side by side, until the work is finished. And remember the story of Steinmetz, knowing what needs fixing. Now for Nehemiah, in a previous chapter, chapter he's rode out in the cover of darkness on his mighty steed. And uh, he's seen the, dis, the disrepair of, uh, of the walls of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is the city of his fathers. It is, if you track the narrative all the way through the Bible, it is the place at the very beginning when God calls Abraham. It is the mountain on top of which he offers his son, Isaac makes a great sacrifice where God confirms his covenant and begins this great rescue plan. It's the place where David takes, uh, King David comes and he sets up his capital. It's the place where he was determined to build a house for the Lord, the great temple. And God said, no, I'm going to build you a house through your descendants that, uh, that you will not be able to count. And it's his son Solomon that builds the temple. And as the last stone is laid and as sacrifices are made, the presence of God comes and fills the most holy place. Jerusalem is a special place for the nation of Israel. And so Nehemiah, as much as he sees the broken walls, he also knows that it is so significant for this once proud nation. And so he calls the people together and they build. He knows what needs fixing. He's got the resources provided for the king. He knows what he's going to be building with. And who's going to perform this huge task? 
God calls together a crowd, the faithful remnant, those who survived the exile. So let's shuffle forward a few years, 400 to Jesus, sent from the throne room of heaven, sent with what resources, who was going to build his kingdom. And how about us here in Sheffield, some 2,000 years later? I don't know as you look out from the lofty aspect that we have here in Crooks, and as you look down upon the city, what do you see? Do you see a city in ruins? Do you see a city that's prospering? Financially, how are we doing? Lots of investment, lots of buildings going up. Spiritually? With food banks, a handful of our friends and partners down at S6, a handful at the start of the pandemic, well into double figures now. Where gas prices are rising uh, and uh, we're going to see significant shifts in our fuel prices. At the same time as the £20 pandemic top-up to the universal credit is going to be removed. What's going to be the state of our city in a couple of months' time as that begins to bite? What's going on in our schools and amongst our young people? Is it a city that is prospering? On some measures, yeah. But it's not a reflection of the kingdom of God that Jesus came to establish. So Jesus came, didn't he? The genius of knowing what needs fixing. And what did Jesus do? Died on a cross. Well, building with stones and wood and timber, that, that makes sense, Lord. That's great. But you came and died on a cross that you could forgive us of our sins? Is that it? Well, yeah. Jesus knows that what he has to build with is your lives and my lives. And so he came to set us free so that we might be kingdom builders and do something beautiful. Because not only did he do that, go to his death on our behalf, showing how much God loves us, but he gathered around himself the new community. A bunch of believers who would live this kingdom life. A place where love and forgiveness, freedom would reign a place under God's hand that despite the circumstances, a nation still uh, oppressed by the great Roman Empire, he came to set human hearts free. Reconciled to God, full of love, acceptance, grace and forgiveness. God came to do something beautiful by kick-starting the new humanity that he was looking to build. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 says this, as you come to Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, once upon a time, 
God's dwelling place was in the temple in Jerusalem, surrounded by a great wall. As Jesus comes, the house, the temple that he seeks to build is amongst the community of his people. It's the place where his spirit, his presence dwells. It's the place where priests, ministers, not, not stood on a stage, but where we as the priesthood of all believers minister to one another and minister to the world. And so if it's a new house that we're looking to build, that God is looking to build, if it's a community, if it's a family through which God is going to bring healing and transformation to the world, what do we build with? We build with love. We build with grace. We build with forgiveness. We build with welcome, with hospitality, an extra place set at the table, the inclusion of others into the great thing that God has got started here. We forgive, we serve, we're generous, we keep short accounts. We are full of hope. God has birthed faith in us. We sacrifice. We prefer one another. And what's more, Jesus is really clear that it is as we love one another, as we love our neighbors, as ourselves, it's the very thing that demonstrates our love for God. You see, I read recently that the only way that one can measure the maturity that we have as followers, as believers in Jesus, is not how much we attend church, as good as that is. It's not how much we read our Bible and whether or not we have a quiet time in the morning or in the evening. It's not how much we're on our knees and we're crying out to him and praying. The one way that we can measure our spiritual maturity is our love for those around us. It's what Jesus came to do. It's what he came to demonstrate. It's what he is calling us to do, not in our own strength, but empowered and enabled with the resources of heaven, the Holy Spirit. You see, we may build the biggest church, but if we have not love, we may have the biggest car and the trappings of wealth, a great car, the best holidays, but if we have not love, we may pray, we may prophesy, we may heal the sick, we may stand on a stage and preach. But if we have not love, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13, we are but a clanging gong. Jesus came to set our hearts on fire. To see that the brokenness of humanity was the selfishness of the human heart. The walls that we build around us to keep us safe to keep the outside out and the inside in. Jesus came to tear down the dividing wall of hostility so that his love might be manifest. You see, it's in our communities that others will experience God's love, that they'll experience grace, the undeserved blessing, that they'll experience God's acceptance. It's the place where they will be forgiven as we forgive those who sin against us. It's the place where they will receive healing for their souls and for their hearts. It's where faith will be birthed. It's where transformation will take place. It's through us. 
See, we are called by God to bless this city. We need to play our part feeding the hungry and uh, working amongst the poor. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. We need to sign up to serve here on a Sunday and play our part with the kids, training and, and growing them and on stage and production and all of that stuff. But it's secondary. It's secondary to being part of a faith-filled community where we ourselves will learn to live amongst others, where we ourselves will learn how to play our part in bringing healing and restoration to those around us. I'm not talking about church on a Sunday, although that has a part to play, but in our homes, around our meal tables, in our clusters, in our sixes, in our communities that meet midweek, in the everyday orderiness of our lives lived, reflecting that same love and that same grace of God. I'm going to invite the band to come and join me. Uh, there's a lot there to take in. And uh, great stuff, guys. So just to finish, I just want to ask a couple of questions just to reflect on as we finish today. So question number one, what does community mean to you? What does community mean to you? Is it church on Sunday? Is it a one-hour, two-hour meeting in the midweek uh, when we meet with our Christian friends? What does community mean to you? Question number two. Are you in a thriving, faith-filled community? You may be. You may have been around the church for a long time. You may not be in community. And that's your choice, absolutely. But if you're not, I firmly believe that it is the call of God on our lives to be in community with those around us. You might want to start one. That'd be great. Come chat with us. Uh, you may have been here for a long time and even if you have if you want to get into community um, then write on a card at the back at the welcome desk saying I don't really want to welcome but I do want to get into community and we will be in touch and we will help you to find a place within the community of the church is that community affecting your life do you sense over the last year, over the last 12 months, over the last two years, that you have made significant progress in your faith, in your love for those around you? And finally, are there any non-Christians in the communities of which you're part? Because if God is going to use us as living stones, then God is inviting us to invite the world into our spaces and places. It's the way that he builds our church. It's the way that he's done it since the beginning of time, and it's the way that he will continue to do it, no matter what uh, the latest church growth, um, church planting initiatives come along. It will be simply you and I opening our doors, inviters, inviting others in to sit at our meal tables, to experience something of the love of God that will make a difference to this city and to the world around us. Stand together, let's pray. Thank you, Lord. So, Father, Father, today we hear the call once again to community. Lord, in the very beginning, he said, let us make mankind in our image. Male and female, he created them. 
Lord, we recognize that even you are community. Lord, that as you created us, you created us not to live in isolation, but Lord, you created us for community, for partnership. Lord, it's where we work out our identity as friend, as partner, as father, as son. So Lord, I pray today, Lord, that you would open up our communities to the rest of the world, to the rest of the city, to those that are around us. And Lord, that you'd open our hearts to our Christian brothers and sisters as well. And Lord, our community wouldn't be confined to a couple of hours on a Sunday and a couple of hours midweek. But Father, that you would pull down the walls, that you would set widows and orphans in families Lord, that we would have deep, deep friendships. And Lord, we wouldn't rest in that place. But Father, we would invite the world to come and sit at your table. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.